Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory and the praise that you so richly deserve for the wisdom that you have given to us through your word and for the grace you have made available for us to study it and to be together on a regular basis. As well, Father, for the beauty of, of the, the body of Christ gathered with the Spirit at work. It's always such a marvel, Father, that people from so many different walks of life can come together and feel so close and, and find such harmony because the Spirit has brought us together on, on terms that are so much more important than the earthly differences that may separate us. And that is the joy of the Spirit, Father, something we, we greatly uh, desire to experience. And so we come today, Father, expecting that and looking forward to that. So we ask, Father, that you would make the most of this time, guiding us into all righteousness, allowing us, Father, to be your ambassadors, helping us, Father, to understand these deep things so that we might be more useful to you, so that we might earn your pleasure, so that we may receive the reward. And we ask, Father, that you would also guide our understanding, my teaching and the hearing of those who hear, so that there would be perfect understanding according to your will. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one final lesson in Galatians. And then with this one final lesson, we're going to cover the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. This part of the letter is going to bring together everything Paul has taught in the entirety of this letter. It's a nice wrapping up of some of the major themes. And in a sense, I think it's also a fitting conclusion for the whole series we've done in here. Going back to the beginning of the fall where we were looking at Jude, we start with Jude, right? And then 2nd, 3rd John, and now Galatians. Because in this final section of the letter, Paul's going to emphasize walking in faith, not by works of flesh. He's going to emphasize the freedom we have in following Christ, yet we do so keeping the commandments of Christ. He's going to emphasize discernment among believers, to know that those who choose to disobey the truth are not to be trusted. And then he's going to counsel us on the rewards that await us at our judgment. These are all themes we've heard in the previous books and in the chapters of this particular letter. Many of those themes appeared in John's letters, certainly in Jude's, and you can remember some of them off the top of your head, I'm sure. Things like being wary of false teachers, which is going to be echoed here again. Not falling for teaching that appeals to the flesh. Not giving in to teaching that is unnecessarily constraining or restrictive or legalistic. But at the same time, not taking advantage of excess liberties. Concerning ourselves with our rewards so we don't lose it in the day of our judgment. These are all themes we've covered. So what we're going to cover tonight helps remind us of all of those things and then tie up the loose ends of what Paul's been dealing with in this letter. So tonight we're going to start where Paul ended last week, which is reiterating an important point that makes all of what will follow tonight possible. And that important point is in verse 18. That was where we ended last week. I'll reread it tonight. 518, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What Paul's expressing, as we looked at last week, is this dichotomy of the human experience in the church. Either we are led by the Spirit or we are led by the flesh. Believers are led by the Spirit, of course, or are to be led by the Spirit. Unbelievers are led by the flesh. Believers are not under the law, for it no longer has any jurisdiction over us, while unbelievers stand condemned by that law. So that's a dichotomy of human experience. And Paul says, because of this dichotomy, because you have spanned that bridge, you have left one and you've joined to the other, you've, you've left the world of flesh and law, and you've joined the body of Christ in grace, and you are now led by the Spirit. He says, Christians now have positional righteousness because of our faith in Christ. We know we are righteous by faith. 
But we don't often understand that we have been promised to receive the full righteousness of Christ in a day to come. That's why Paul said last week, we hope for that righteousness. And today we've received a down payment on the promise of that righteousness. That down payment is the spirit in us. So one day we receive a body that is righteous. But Paul says the true Christian is one who knows that, who hopes for that because of that promise, because of God's promise, and therefore does not seek to obtain righteousness in their own power now. So Paul reiterates that truth of our current position before the Lord. We are led, and in the Greek you could say it this way, we are carried by the Spirit. Our English Bibles In my case, it says if, yours may say the same thing, if we are led by the Spirit. But in Greek, the word for if carries equally the meaning of since, since we are being led by the Spirit. So Paul says, since we are led by the Spirit, we are therefore no longer under the law. The Spirit's leading takes the place of the law in our life. So the law no longer guides our life. The law no longer dictates what pleasing the Lord looks like. Because we have the very author of that law living in us. Since we know we will be all righteous one day, and there is nothing less than perfection when you're speaking of righteousness. There's no such thing as 50% righteous. So we are all unrighteous now in our bodies. We await the day when we will be 100% righteous in our new bodies. So in the meantime, there's no purpose in spending our time trying to obtain some incremental measure of righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, because it does not please God that we should try to even do so. It's self-righteousness at best. Instead, Paul says, forgetting all of that, we now have the author of righteousness, the author of that law living in us, who at all times can direct us according to what pleases the Lord. That direction is the leading of the Spirit, and our following of it is our duty and our obedience to God. But we aren't mistaken about what it's achieving. It's pleasing the Lord, but it is not making us righteous. We're not righteous until the day we receive a body free of sin. We are pleasing the Lord, and that is our main concern at this point. We've been bought with a price, so we live to please Him. And don't worry concerning when and how you will be righteous. That has already been settled at the cross. You will be righteous in a day to come. And in the meantime, the test is how you live according to the leading of the Spirit. And the reward for our obedience is eternal inheritance, not righteousness. For righteousness is not given by works of law. It's given by faith alone. So our faith has already granted us positional righteousness. Now the Spirit lives in us to lead us into experiential righteousness. This is the basic theme of last week. So with that statement, Paul now launches into the final section of the letter, which is all about how to be experientially righteous or experientially pleasing to the Lord in light of the fact that we have the Spirit and the promise of coming righteousness. And he's going to make an application from all the doctrines that we've looked at in this letter. And that's the natural thing, and that's the proper thing to do at this point. You know, we don't learn doctrine just to have the knowledge of it. We learn doctrine so that we can better understand Christ and ourselves. And then we work to apply what we learn so that we can become less like ourselves and more like Christ. And so he's going to do that. And then lastly, equally importantly, he's going to start to drive a wedge or continue to drive a wedge between the Judaizers and the Galatian church which is where he started. So you can see the letter sort of turning full circle now. He'll finish by exposing their motives and reminding once again of his own authority and his own sincerity. So that's the overview. Let's go to verses 19 through 26 now as we start this last section. Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The famous verses of the fruit of the Spirit. But to properly understand and interpret this passage, we need to get focused and remain focused on the contrast that Paul is painting here. I think it's tempting at times as a teacher to really dive into this list and deal with the individual words that are given in these two respective lists. And, and there's value in that. But it's also a challenge because you can have a tendency to lose the forest for the trees. We need to understand why Paul has launched into a discussion of these two lists, placing them here at this point. So let's take a bird's eye view first. You notice right away that these lists are contrasts one to the other. The first list begins with a mention of the deeds of the flesh. That is contrasted with the list in verse 22 that begins the fruit of the spirit. And even the words, the word flesh and the word spirit are contrast in Scripture because they typically are labels for two kinds of people. Flesh will often stand for the unbeliever, whereas the Spirit often stands for believers. Notice also in verse 21, Paul says those who practice deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that would confirm for us that this first group is a group of behaviors that are representative of the behaviors of unbelievers. And then the second group, in verse 24, are described as those who belong to Christ. Therefore, also confirming that the second group is a list of behaviors characteristic of believers. So immediately we see we have two lists contrasting the behaviors that characterize two kinds of people. Unbelievers living according to the flesh and believers living according to the spirit. And as I said, when we try to interpret Paul's point here, we need to take note of three aspects or three overarching qualities to these two lists. First, it's clear that these lists are not intended to be all-inclusive. For example, the characteristics that define the unbeliever, all 15 of them, these distinct behaviors, well, certainly there are more than 15 ways that unbelievers demonstrate their fleshly nature. I mean, where is murder on the list? Where is theft? And on and on and on and on. So we have to conclude that Paul's list was merely representative. And then secondly, when we look at the nine fruits of the Spirit, we draw that same conclusion. That cannot be all-inclusive either. There are other ways in which the Spirit manifests Himself in the life of a believer. Where is charity? Where is self-sacrifice? Where is wisdom? And on and on. Those are fruits of the Spirit as well. So the second list represents these same behaviors, characteristic of the life of a believer, but not all-inclusive of what you should expect as a believer. That doesn't diminish the value of what Paul said, of course. I'm simply illustrating that these are not like you only get these nine things. That's not the intent. And then the third and last thing to notice, these lists are not mutually exclusive either. So neither are they all inclusive, nor are they mutually exclusive. For example, a believer can exhibit behaviors more typical of the flesh. Believers get angry. Believers get jealous. Believers get drunk and the like. 
And an unbeliever can exhibit behaviors typical of a believer who can show patience at times and show kindness at times and, and all the rest. So that's why in verse 21, Paul uses the word practice, right? These are things that are the practice of one group or the other in describing their traits. So what he's saying is, taken together, the flesh produces a lifestyle of these behaviors, while on the other hand, the unbeliever will move in a different direction. And since the unbeliever only has the flesh guiding them, then these kinds of things are their norm, but the believer has the ability now through the influence of the Spirit to rise above their nature and to adopt a new set of behaviors, so they have the potential, the propensity, to demonstrate fruit. I think it's interesting that Paul calls it the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And I think the difference there is important to note. There are deeds, meaning the work, the natural work of the flesh. And then there's the fruit. Think of a tree. Not every tree produces fruit. So it is not altogether automatic that these behavioral changes will occur in the life of every believer. All right? We could have a little debate, I'm sure, on how much fruit should you see. And do believers always produce some kind of fruit and so on. I'm frankly not very interested in that. I'm not sure where that argument takes us in any case. What I do think is important, though, is to understand the call of Scripture is that the believer is to produce this fruit and is to move in this direction. And with the power of the Spirit, they have the capacity to do so, if not a guarantee, and the unbeliever does not. So what is the point of the list? Well, Paul's first point is that over time, Spirit-led living should produce in us a degree of experiential righteousness. We already have positional righteousness based on faith. But we've also now been given the means for pursuing experiential righteousness by following the leading of the Spirit. And the following of the Spirit will produce fruitful evidence of the Spirit's work in our life. That evidence cannot be measured in discrete terms. It is not irrevocable. In other words, it's not without the possibility that we revert. We use the term sometimes backsliding for that. It is measured rather on balance and over time. On balance and over time. Am I looking more like Christ today than I did yesterday? And more like Christ tomorrow than I did today? And measured on balance and over time, it should be apparent that the work of the Spirit is changing who I am. Just as unrighteousness is practiced for unbelievers... The believer will come to demonstrate more and more evidence of righteousness as they practice following the Spirit. So Paul's first point is, that is the natural expectation that we should begin to show experiential righteousness. So when we follow the Spirit, what that means, practically speaking, is we're going to find that more and more of our thoughts and our behaviors begin to align with the Lord's desires. And the evidence that we are aligning is that we will be patient where before we were prone to outbursts of anger. Or that faithful reliance on the Lord will begin where before we were engaged in idolatry or sorcery of some form. Or strife and disputes will fade and in their place we will find peace and joy emerging at times we never used to see it. Immoral behaviors, impurity and drunkenness will be replaced by self-control. Hatred and selfishness will be replaced by sacrificial love. I think the point of the list is not to narrow our focus down to each item on the list. It's to see at the broader scale, these things will start to give way to these things in our life. But if we resist the leading of the Spirit, which we all have a capacity to do to a degree at least, then we will largely remain where we started, it stands to reason. Since our flesh continues to dominate us, then the behaviors that we exhibit are going to continue to mirror those of an unbeliever. That's why Paul says in verse 25, 
that since we live by the Spirit, let us walk in the same manner. He wouldn't give that imperative if it weren't possible for us to do otherwise. The point of his statement is, you have something that gives you capacity, but you now need to work with that thing, in other words, with the Spirit, to realize the benefits of that capacity. You have the Spirit, now walk with Him. That's Paul's first point from the list. Second point, Paul emphasizes that this transformation is reserved for the believer alone because it depends on the Spirit. There's no way to fake this, not in a long-term sense and certainly not in a spiritual sense, even if I can mimic the behaviors of somebody who's a believer. I can't mimic the spiritual change that underlies it. So this is something unique for the believer since it depends on the Spirit. In verse 21, Paul reminds the church that he had taught them earlier and was teaching them now again that an unbeliever will not have the power to make this transition. It cannot happen for those who lack the Spirit. And we can tell from this passing mention in verse 21 that he's really making a veiled reference to the Judaizers, much like John did in his letters concerning the Judaizers. He's asking them, consider the behavior of these men. Consider what you see as fruit in their life. And if you're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit, indirectly we might assess that they may not have the Spirit. It's a tricky thing to do that, of course. But that's his purpose in raising this argument. Notice the unique set of behaviors that Paul chose to use as his examples of unbelieving fleshly behavior. Because we've already established there's a much wider spectrum of possible behaviors we could have looked at. But he leaves off some of the most egregious, like homosexuality and murders and thefts, things that often show up in other lists of unbelievers. This has a very unique quality, dissensions, disputes and factions, things that certainly are just as much sinful behavior but so unique that they draw the question, why did he choose those? I think the answer is he was highlighting the sin of these Judaizers in the way they created disputes, splitting the church over issues of law and custom in the Jewish tradition. His point being, take a look at who they are, take stock of how they live, and make an assessment of why or whether you should be listening to their teaching. And this takes us to Jude, right? Jude said that men will have this sensual fleshly desire and use their position of false teaching to offer opportunity for them to follow those desires. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was a part of their behavior. Paul will say later in this letter that they don't even do the very things in the law that they're commanding you to follow. It suggests to me that they're hypocrites all around. But yes, I think Paul's making a veiled reference here to these men in an attempt to discredit them and to maybe point out that they're unbelievers. But it's equally important, I think, for Christians to remember that living under the law of Moses is powerless to produce the fruit of righteousness. That's another aspect of this teaching. He's not only saying that an unbeliever is powerless to produce this change because they lack the Spirit. He's also illustrating that the believer is equally powerless to mimic these fruits if they rely on the law to try to achieve it rather than on the Spirit. Notice at the end of verse 23, Paul says the fruits of the Spirit are, he says, not against the law. The Greek word translated against is kata, which can also mean according to. So I think we should translate this just a little differently. We should translate it, there is no law according to such things. In other words, there's no law that can produce these kinds of outcomes. You cannot follow law to arrive at joy or peace love and patience, those things are not part of the law. They've never entered into the equation. You cannot mandate those behaviors. I mandate, you know the old joke that we're going to take away all vacations until morale improves, right? I can't mandate joy. I can't mandate peace. Paul has said, not only to the unbeliever, but to the believer particularly, you cannot rely on law as a means to obtaining what only the Spirit can provide. Even if it's in a misguided, misunderstood way of saying, I Follow the law to please the Lord. That's not the prescription he gave us. You can't substitute. 
Paul's concern is whether we are taking advantage of our freedom to experience righteousness. Will we follow the Spirit and gain a taste of righteousness now? For it is a very sweet thing to act in righteous ways. To know that feeling. To know you're acting in the consideration of the Spirit's leading. To know you're aligned in His will. That is a, that is a wonderful difference and departure from the everyday nature of our sin nature that we experience all the rest of the time. We can have a taste of heaven now. That is the only taste of heaven we really have. It's, it's in knowing what it's like to be righteous, even for a moment, by the Spirit's leading. We can have that. Or, and it's an or, not an and. Or, we can remain living in our flesh, satisfying our fleshly desires, seeking self-righteousness through fleshly works of law. It's a choice. Paul says, you're not under one, you're under the other. And if we get sidetracked by a pursuit of some dead and useless law, thinking we're achieving something for the sake of righteousness, we'll be setting aside the opportunity God gave us for the time we have here, to pursue righteousness in the one way he gave, through the fruit of the Spirit, through the walking with the Lord in his Spirit. And it'll be such a shame that we wasted all of that time. Because in the day of our judgment, the question will be, what did you do with what I gave you? And the question won't be, how much righteousness did you achieve while you were waiting for my righteousness to come to you? That's not going to be the test. So that's why Paul ends in verse 26 by saying, let's not become boastful and compete with one another. He's referring to the competition of the flesh, that inevitably results when a church sets its mind on attempts to keep law rather than on attempts to follow the Spirit. We call it legalism. When we try to pursue self-righteousness, we immediately begin to make comparisons of our performance with others. And the ones you'll compare to are the others in the church. You won't compare to God. And that fleshly, selfish mindset is counter to true sanctification. You'll always look for that person who's failing to keep the law a little more than you are. Whatever rules that is. And when I say law, you know, it comes in a multitude of forms. But when the church, in any sense, stands up some standard of behavior that's not spirit-led, that is designed to appeal to the flesh through, as Paul says in Colossians, through the harsh treatment of the body, if it's meant to be something in which it's tough, I've got to persevere and I've got to state all the rules and watch myself carefully, you've just invited a comparison and a competition and a boastful opportunity. And it has nothing to do with righteousness. That's why the Judaizers were encouraging the people in this particular area to follow the law because it was in the tradition of the Pharisees to do so. So that the Pharisees could always be top dog in whatever game they set up for the people to follow. So as he leaves chapter 5, Paul insists that Christians put aside the law and any thought of self-righteousness that we might gain by it and in its place pursue living by the Spirit, which is seeking to experience a measure of righteousness though aware that we're not obtaining the full measure of it, so that we may please the Lord. That's Paul's ending. So now, we all know that none of us follow the Spirit perfectly, even the best of us. And we know that sin is an ever-present reality for the Christian, short of our glorified body. So that gives Paul reason to go into chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where Paul develops further what Spirit-led living looks like, given the reality of a church made up of sinful people. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. 
So to the church, Paul says, when one is caught in any trespass, we are to restore such a person and not to condemn them. I want you to notice first, Paul describes this as someone caught in a trespass. Paul doesn't mean we catch the person sinning. That's not what it means, although it really sounds like that in English, but that's not what he's talking about. He's describing someone who is caught by the sin, entangled in it, falls into it. So in other words, these instructions apply to someone who has a bad moment or a bad day. They succumb to temptation. They were caught by their flesh. And now they need restoration with the body from that sin. Perhaps they you know, fell into gossiping or lying or maybe it was more serious, some kind of sexual infidelity. I mean, it's any sin. It's not the kind of sin that matters. In fact, Paul uses the word any, any trespass, so long as it is the product of a weak moment. But this description would preclude someone whose sin is repeated and unrepentant, someone who is practicing the sin in an ongoing fashion and with no regard for its impact on themselves or others. For that person, the Bible gives a totally different kind of counsel. Paul himself says they are to be put outside fellowship. But restoration is for those who want to be better. They just suffered the sin that is common to all men, which is that moment when the flesh won. And then the moment's over, and now we wish it hadn't happened. And restoration is to bring this person back into fellowship, into the body of Christ, absent condemnation. That person is already forgiven by faith, but they want and they need the benefit of a body to support them in their walk of faith, and they want to be restored and made whole with the body in that respect. And so they are to be restored. And then you notice that the responsibility for the restoration, Paul says, belongs to you who are spiritual. And the term spiritual, back to the contrast we saw in chapter 5, describes a person walking in the spirit and not giving in to their flesh. Once again, not a perfect person, but someone who is walking in the strength of the spirit at this point. And so we can presume Paul was probably describing leaders in the church, whether that's a formal role of leadership like a pastor or just someone who has that informal role. But either way, those who have been entrusted with some form of leadership, precisely because they show the fruit of the Spirit. They pass the character tests of 1 Timothy and Titus. And they do so in such a consistent way that they're in a position to restore someone back into fellowship. And restore doesn't just mean, hey, come on back in, we love you. It includes that. But it's more to the issue of teaching and of encouraging them to continue to pray for them and with them, to exhort them not to do so again. I mean, to make sure that we're really working to move them forward in their walk, even as we receive them back in. This is so unlike the way the law regulates fellowship. If we were to live according to the law, then when one in our group sinned, we would be forced by that very law to exact a price from that person as a condition of restoration. But under grace, there is absolutely nothing but a repentant heart required to bring someone back into fellowship. Instead of judgment and condemnation, Paul says we give a spirit of gentleness to that person. And then Paul says, and actually he warns, that those who guard the flock... Those who act in this way to restore others into fellowship, that we not become haughty like the Pharisees did. We can't forget that we are sinners also. And we will be caught in our own trespasses from time to time. That's the irony of this. That is, we all fall in some respects sooner or later. No one is free from a stumble. So we must maintain a healthy self-image, which is one that recognizes our sinfulness, rather than what the world teaches, right, which thinks well of self. The better self-image is to know the truth of your own heart. Paul says, keep looking at yourself, keep continually examining your own heart so that you will not be tempted to think you are better than they and in that way fall for another even greater sin. So the effect of grace-oriented, 
spirit-led living in the body, Paul says, is to bear one another's burdens, which is counter to the law in every respect. For example, in a church body, when you sin, and you might come to me and confess your sin to me, my obligation under Scripture is to restore you. And that's assuming a repentant heart. That's assuming someone who's seeking restoration in an honest way. And when I come to you, having sinned, and I confess my sin to you, you restore me into the body of Christ. And in the course of that exchange, we are encouraging and exhorting each other to do better as a result. And in that way, Paul says, we are bearing each other's burdens. You know, it is a burden to bear someone else's sin in the sense that we not only have to bear the news of it, which might be difficult or disappointing, we have to bear the responsibility of restoring that person in reality, not just in word, to consider their future need, to worry about their future stumbles, to consider what prayer needs that brings us or what kinds of instructional need that we now have to respond to. No different than if a parent had a child stumble in some sense. It's one thing to punish and then another thing to restore, but you still have the issue of what will come next. Right? How do I make sure this doesn't repeat itself? That's the bearing that's coming in the church. What a wonderful difference it is to live this way without the condemnation of law and with the promise and the assurance of restoration. That is by grace. That's what it means to live without being under law. Paul says when we live this way, we are still fulfilling a law, though. We are fulfilling the law of Christ. I said last week that living without the law of Moses does not mean we live with no law. That's antinomianism. We don't believe that we are without law. We simply know that we are not under the Mosaic law for all the reasons we've already discussed. Paul now makes clear we are under a law. In fact, he says if you follow this leading of the Spirit and you restore people in love, you are demonstrating the law of Christ in your behavior. You're fulfilling it. What is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is a law that replaces the law of Moses for those who have come to Christ. This is why we say that Christians still live by rules and standards. But those standards are simply no longer found on stone. According to what's written in Jeremiah 31, they're now written on our heart, which is a way of saying that the author of the law of God now lives in us and is able to communicate directly to us. That's why the standards of the Ten Commandments or any other part of the law of Moses are not where we go to seek our righteousness. We go to our heart as directed by the Holy Spirit. Not the fleshly side of our heart, but the spirit-led side of our heart. That's why I can't give you a list of the laws written in the law of Christ. That is literally impossible. Our flesh loves to see things written in black and white. But in his wisdom, God chose to write his law in blood on our heart where we can't see it. So that now the only choice we have, if we are to please him, is to follow him in spirit and in truth. If we follow him at all. We can't follow him anymore on the basis of flesh. And following something on the basis of flesh means following what you can see and what you can manipulate as opposed to following what is now only available by spirit and by truth. And, of course, never mind the infinite nature of the law of Christ when it's not been written out on stone, right? So since we cannot write out the law of Christ and describe it in detail, Jesus does give us a summary. He summarizes the law of Christ at a point in the Gospels when he's asked concerning what it means to keep God's law. And in Luke chapter 10, it's in all the Gospels in one form, but in Luke chapter 10, verses 26 through 28, we see this exchange. Jesus speaking first, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And this man who is speaking to Jesus answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Paul says, when we bear each other's burdens and restore one another without judgment, we are fulfilling this law. 
In other words, we are loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, And as we do these things, we do them because of our love for God. Now, that is a broad statement that is an all-encompassing, overarching statement about where God expects us to go. But it is powerful in the fact that it will guide you into the right thing every time. As you face something new that you've never encountered before, you'll have the right guide. And of course, the Spirit is alive and active and speaking to you concerning these things for the reasons we said last week. Remember, we talked last time about those instantaneous moments in which you have choices and in your heart you know what God is leading you to do. If you haven't uh, had the chance to hear that, I encourage you to go listen to it from last week. But when we live by a legalistic code of rules, Paul says, we begin to deceive ourselves. We come to think ourselves better than we truly are simply because we start to meet an arbitrary standard that we have decided we are going to keep. And we deceive ourselves through that kind of selective rule-keeping. Even the Pharisees didn't do that. I mean, even the Pharisees didn't keep the whole law, but they made very sure that the key things that were most visible or that were easiest for them to keep were the things they stayed focused on, and so they could walk around feeling very good about themselves, forgetting that they were disobeying other laws. And then on top of that, we become life inspectors. We soon begin evaluating everyone else to decide if they are measuring up to the rules as well. When we do this, you're going to find opportunity to boast and on and on like we talked about. All of that energy is worthless and wasted. Paul says, focus your, life on exa- focus your time on examining your own life, not on examining others. And when we have reason to boast, it will be concerning ourselves and it will be in the future. The future he's thinking about here is when we stand before Christ on our judgment day and we receive the Lord's judgment of what we did in the walk we had in the Spirit. Then we'll know whether we have something to boast about and it will be because of what we did in following the Lord not in what we did in our flesh. So he says in verse 4 that our judgment won't come in relationship to other men. It comes in relationship to the Lord's desires. And in that sense, he says, each man will bear his own load. So he's juxtaposed, or he's contrasted two thoughts. In the interactions of the church, that the horizontal level of relationship, we bear each other's burdens and we restore each other in the grace that was extended to us from the Lord. But when we take, think in the vertical relationship we have with God, we bear our own load in the sense that we will stand before God and answer for what we did in our own walk, which gives us motivation to concern ourselves with ourselves and not with others. Because we are not going to judge them. We're going to restore them regardless. We are going to be judged ourselves. So it puts all of the focus on us. No need to focus on other people for there's no value in doing it anyway. And now Paul uses or takes from there the conclusion. He brings himself to the conclusion of his argument, verses 6 through 10. He says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the question is, how can a church be successful in its pursuit of experiential righteousness? Especially in light of our common struggle against sin and because of that universal call that we have to follow the Spirit and because we know there is this judgment coming where we stand before Christ. How can we help each other be successful? That's the point Paul's finishing on. We know it's not by law. We know it's by spirit. We know we are to show grace and love for one another, for that is the law we're now under. But Paul says, in light of all of this, how do we make sure as a team we're all successful when we reach this moment of judgment? 
That's his point. And he begins by saying, first, the teaching and the receiving of the word of God is our first priority. There will be those teaching good things to the body of Christ in the hope of stimulating the body into greater obedience to the spirit. And the teacher, when they do that, is bearing the burdens of the church in the sense of their own work. The diligence, the sacrifice that is required to become knowledgeable of the word of God and to deliver it to the body of Christ in the hope of nurturing that body and helping each of them arrive before Christ on the day of their judgment in a better position than they would have been otherwise. That's the hope, that's the purpose behind teaching. And speaking from experience, I can tell you there is no more difficult task that I know in my life. The words here I can tell you from my experience are absolutely true. The Lord simply does not reveal his word to those who approach him without sincerity, commitment, and diligence. And so if a teacher is to do what we need them to do for us, they've got to work hard for long periods of time at an extended effort, and they have to do it with a real sincerity to get to the truth. Otherwise, what they do is of no value to them or anyone else. So the teacher has, in a very real sense, lifted that weight off of the shoulders of the students and put that weight on themselves and assumed it for themselves so that the students can benefit from that. So a teacher bears the burdens of the body in that respect. And Paul then flips it. He says, meanwhile, those who receive the benefits of such teaching are then expected to share good things with the teacher. And sharing good things means probably a variety of ways in which we can bless one another in the body. But it must also include material support so that the teacher is able to do that teaching. But it means prayer support as well. And it means any number of other benefits that can be passed on in the body. All of this is another way that burdens are being borne by others. In fact, just a commitment of time to come and be in the class on a regular basis, a burden in itself. And not in a funny sense of, oh, we have to come and listen, but in the sense of time and effort and schedule priorities and all the rest, family issues. But that is the opportunity we have to bear the burden of being a student or of supporting a teacher. I tell you, in eternal terms, it's a bargain. It's a bargain for both of us. The second priority, Paul says, is the church cannot expect to mock God and get away with it. What he's referring to is the Christian who chooses to live in the flesh without regard for the consequences. Chooses to live their life knowing they have the option to live by the Spirit, but goes a different direction intentionally, repeatedly giving into the flesh, repeatedly living without regard for the consequences of sin, is mocking God. How is it mocking God? Well, we mock his tolerance and his patience, and we mock his role of judge. I want you to imagine walking into a courtroom and telling the judge that you plan to just keep on speeding as much as you want. Even after he gives you this speeding ticket today, don't worry, judge, I'm just going to keep on speeding. I couldn't care less what you're about to do. What do you think the judge is going to do in response? Right? What do you think he's going to be inclined to do? To put you in your place? So imagine what God is willing to do with those who live in that way, mocking him. And we're talking about the believer, right? We're talking about the one who's been brought into a relationship, has the benefits of grace and the spirit, and yet has thrown that back in God's face. Paul says, this is what's going to happen. We will reap what we sow. The agricultural metaphor is easy enough to understand, right? When you plant corn seed, you get corn stalks. When you plant wheat grain, you get wheat stalks, right? So when you sow sin, you receive discipline. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And and that's a verse written to believers. Paul says in verse 8, How we invest our time will be reflected in how the Lord rewards us. 
If we live a life in the flesh, then we will reap corruption, he says, in many forms. That corruption will begin here and now, certainly, with the consequences of sin that come in this life. But it doesn't end here, and that's the scarier part. We will also be corrupting our eternal inheritance, our reward. The corruption here, I want you to think of corruption in the sense of how Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven, where neither rust nor moth will destroy it. But now, by the way we live, we're effectively corrupting that eternal inheritance, so to speak. So again, not our salvation. That's settled on the cross. We're talking about what the Lord has in store for those who love him or what we may lose as a result of our poor choices. I should also note in passing that this verse is saying nothing about money or personal riches. I say that because unscrupulous men, false teachers have come along and twisted this verse and others like it to suggest that we can manipulate the Lord for personal profit. That if we give money, that is so, they would say, to some ministry, then we will receive, reap, financial reward. Complete nonsense and just a a cursory glance at the context here tells us that has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here. We can see that clearly. So to use this verse in that kind of a context is a complete misuse of Scripture. It's not a biblical truth. Finally, the third way we serve each other to make each other successful, Paul says to the church, don't lose heart in doing good. Now, doing good does not merely mean acts of charity. Paul means in the sense of living in the Spirit. That is good. Following his leading. Living to please him. That's the good he's saying we shouldn't grow weary in. I like to remind people there's no such thing as retirement from spirit-led living. You walk with the Lord for a lifetime and then eternally thereafter. Paul says there is a reward for those who don't grow weary. What does weariness mean? There's the Christian who flames out in a blaze of sin and consequences. They destroy their witness and their whole life in a moment. Just goes off the rails in a serious way, in a big way, and they never look back. They almost make you wonder were they ever saved. And then there's a Christian who lets life's distractions just pull them away over time. They slowly lose interest in the things of God. Their work gets too hard. Their financial situation is too distressing. Their family demands are too great. It's like on a freeway. They take an exit ramp at some point and they can't find their way back. And then thirdly, there's the Christian who stumbles in a moment of sin and they never seek restoration. They're too proud or too vain to humble themselves and come back in. And then I guess there's a fourth group that sours to the message and that call to obedience. They don't actually leave. They still appear at all the functions, but it's not getting in for some reason. They prefer the pleasures of sin. They harden. They think themselves better than others. Perhaps they just don't think it matters as much anymore. Maybe it's something inside the way they think. But whatever it is, they're there, but they're not there. So you have those types of ways. But there's a myriad of variations in all of that. The point is all the same, though, right? Persevering and doing good is the process of letting the Spirit lead us where He wants us to go as opposed to us directing ourselves to somewhere else or going nowhere at all. Instead, he says, we persevere and do good, especially to those in the household of God. There is a priority in where we take our acts of charity. There is a priority of where we spend our time. There is a priority for the audience of our witness. It is to the church. It's not exclusively to the church, but it is to the church. I think charity to the world is always a good thing, but it should never come at the expense of the needs of the church. If there's someone hungry in the church... They should be fed before someone hungry in the world is fed. If there's someone in the church that needs clothes, they should be clothed before someone in the world is given clothes. You know, when James talks about when you tell a brother, be warm and be filled, remember he's saying to a brother. He says the central problem in that church was they were not being generous and charitable to each other. 
Paul says is this church is attempting to live in some measure of daily righteousness, to experience a little heaven now. We do that by commonly showing grace and love to one another to keep the body whole and restored, even as we stumble from time to time. Encouraging each other to go forward in the word, both in the teaching and the hearing of the word, to be concerned with those who stumble and to always be pursuing for the good, to continue manifesting that in our lives. And then finally we end the letter and we do it with parting comments both to the Judaizers and to the people in Galatia concerning Paul's authority. Verses 11 through 18, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. So this is the closing and Paul just addresses a couple of points. He takes a second here to note in verse 11 that he's the one writing the words of the letter at this point. And Paul usually relied on a scribe to write his letters. That was common. Men would dictate and then someone else would write. And that was traditionally the way Paul wrote his letters. But there's also a fairly common tradition on Paul's part to stop at some point near the end of the letter, pick up the pen and finish it, which is probably what he did here. So you'll see that at times near the end. Paul says, I write this in my own hand. You notice he says in large letters. That's part of the reasons why some people think that perhaps Paul suffered from some kind of eye problem, that he would have to write in large letters, and that would be a sign that this is Paul writing because it looks like a second grader, you know, writing with big letters on paper. In any event, it's not unusual. He was doing this to authenticate the letter, to make sure someone knew somebody else hadn't written this letter and said it was from Paul. You can tell this is from Paul. Looking at what he wrote, he begins to speak about the motives of the Judaizers. He says, first... He says, they are those who disturb the church with teaching on circumcision and in the law. They do it merely for a way to show off their flesh, meaning he wants to show off how they can be pious and look good in the process. And they ride into town teaching people that they have to do these things, showing off their own piety, and then in effect boasting in their flesh by virtue of saying, look what I was able to get them to do. And that made them feel good, like that showed that they had control, they had authority, they had influence. They create their own game. They rig the rules, they win every time, and they feel good about it. So the first thing he highlights is their ego. Second thing, in the latter half of verse 12, Paul says they are motivated by the fear of persecution. If they were to preach Christ and grace in the proper way, they would face the same persecution Paul received, which came at the hands of the Jews, who hated to hear a message that invalidated their law and their traditions. So to avoid the persecution, they changed the message of the cross. They added law and circumcision, and they did so to appease the Jews in the process. And now Paul says, they're just a bunch of cowards. And that's also, by the way, a powerful argument against any who would say, no, 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 Paul never expected the church not to keep the law. Paul kept the law. Have you ever heard someone try to tell you this? There are those who want the law back in the traditions of the church, just like men in this day did. And they try to tell you and I that when you read Paul, Paul never said we shouldn't practice the law. He even practiced the law himself. He wanted us to practice the law. You don't get a better defense than right here. 
Paul says, I'm persecuted for teaching against the law. These men are teaching the law because they're cowards for that persecution. It's a pretty clear distinction being made there. And then thirdly, Paul points out their hypocrisy, like I've already said. They don't even keep the law themselves. Never mind the fact that no man can keep the law perfectly. These guys weren't even trying. They were hypocrites. And then Paul contrasts himself with these evil men. In verse 14, he says, he only boasts in the work of Christ, never in his own work. And what he means by the work of Christ, of course, is the work of Christ on the cross. And he says, by that work, Paul says, the world was crucified to Paul first. And what he means by that is that anything of the world which might have attracted Paul in any way that might have offered him an alternative to dying for Christ, he says, I didn't want any of that. All my desires for what the world offers died on the cross. And then he says, Paul was crucified to the world. Paul was crucified to the world. And that means that anything in Paul that might have wanted to please the world was put to death in Christ. So anything in the world that Paul might have wanted has been taken away. And anything in Paul that might have wanted for the world has been taken away. So that means the only thing left is for Paul to live for Christ. Being circumcised is nothing. Being uncircumcised is nothing. Those things just mean Jew versus Gentile. It makes no difference who you are. It makes a difference who you've become. The new creation. To those in the church who understand this truth and live according to it, Paul then pronounces a blessing. Peace and mercy will rest upon us. We know the mercy of the Lord. We show it to others routinely. We know the peace of righteousness that has been promised. And in the end, verse 16, he pronounces a special blessing on the Jewish believers in the church. That's what he means when he says the Israel of God. He means the remnant. So he says to the remnant, I pronounce a special blessing in this church. Why would he end his letter with that? He wants to make clear that after all that he said about the law, he's not against the Jew. He was against those who wanted to reinstitute the law of the Jews. And his ending command to the church is the last thing we look at tonight and an interesting ending note. He says the church is to defend him in the face of the Judaizers' attacks. Paul says, let no one cause trouble for me anymore. The church, in other words, has a responsibility to uphold their teachers, their legitimate teachers and their reputation, to defend them in their absence. We have a responsibility to be respectful of our leaders who are teaching us well, and we are to defend them against those who would try to tear them down. Not because they're perfect, but because it's not a holy thing to see that process taking place. Paul's defense for his request is to remind the church that his own body bore the marks of suffering he received in the name of Christ. What he's saying is the body of Paul had marks, had injuries that demonstrated his courage, his sincerity to preach the true gospel. The enemy attacks those who oppose him, and Paul's body bore the marks of those attacks. So what Paul is saying to the church is, if I, Paul, subjected my body to the attacks of Christ's enemies for your sake, to come to you, to speak the truth to you, to be your teacher, then the least you can do is defend me from some of those same people with your words. And then the letter ends in customary fashion. He says, I extend the grace of the Lord to the spirit of every believer in the church. And he concludes with an amen, as we do also. Amen. So that's the book of Galatians. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the men and women in this room that bear each other's burdens, mine included, for their prayers, for their encouragement, their friendship, their attendance week after week in these studies, their patience and their attentiveness to the study. Thank you, Father, that you've given me the strength and time to prepare and the desire to serve you in this way. And we see in both sides, Father, the work of the Spirit. We know this is how you intend it to be. And we ask, Lord, that the work we've done would please you. But most of all, Father, we ask that the work we've done would lead us to please you even more in the future. 
that our learning, Father, would be useful in that regard. Well, give us a good holiday, Father. Give us a time with friends and family. Give us a time of relaxation as we remember the birth of your son. And then as the season is over, I pray, Father, you'd give us the opportunity to come back, perhaps with new friends. Let us study continually, Father, till we sit at your feet and do it in person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.